Welcome to More Like This, a podcast from Netflix Q, the journal that celebrates the people, ideas, and process of creating great entertainment. I'm Krista Smith. I've spent over 20 years interviewing some of the biggest names in Hollywood, but this is going to be a little bit different. Each episode will bring fresh new perspectives from across the entertainment industry. You'll get an inside look into the stories behind your favorite films, documentaries, and series. Interviews with acclaimed actors, directors, writers, comedians, and musicians, as well as those just on the rise. You'll get the kind of access only Netflix can offer. Oh, and one more thing. This is the best part. I won't be doing this alone. I get to collaborate with some of the best film writers, interviewers, and experts in the business. My co-host this week is producer, writer, podcast host, and founder of the influential Blacklist, the fantastic Franklin Leonard. Hey, Franklin. Welcome to our very first show. Thank you for having me, Krista. The leadoff slot is a lot of pressure. Uh, I'm Franklin Leonard, the founder of the Blacklist. Uh, If you don't know who we are, we're a company that identifies and celebrates great screenwriting, probably best known for our annual list of the industry's most liked unproduced screenplays, which will actually be dropping next month. Uh, If you want to know more about us, check us out online. We're Blacklist with no vowels, B-L-C-K-L-S-T dot com. And Franklin, you've been busy lately. It's true. It's true. Uh, yeah, no, uh, recently joined the uh, the mass editor Vanity Fair as a contributing editor, the board of uh, American Cinematheque, which was uh, a really sort of overwhelming emotional experience for me. Sidney Pollack, who I worked for in the last year of his life, was one of the founders of American Cinematheque. It's very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. And also, you're in London. I'm in London. Yep. Making a movie, hopefully, uh, top of next year, COVID permitting. Great. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> And Franklin, it's also Thanksgiving tomorrow. It's going to be tight knit. We're going to be with our family. And what better time to be stuck at home with your family than to watch some great content on Netflix? I feel like that is a way a lot of people are going to be spending their time. (laughs) Good way to relieve the stress. What have been some of the things you've been watching lately? Well, most recently, binging The Crown, like seemingly everyone else in my Twitter timeline. Bravo and brava yet again to everybody involved in that show. I'm looking at Jingle Jangle. Seems to be some light holiday entertainment uh, with some great musical performances and choreography. Yeah, no, there's a lot of great stuff coming up. I mean, for my part, I learned a lot about chess and Queen's Gambit. Big fan. So I've been I've been enjoying Queen's Gambit and then stressing myself out watching Social Dilemma. So it's kind of been a little of both. (laughs) I I, I haven't gotten to Social Dilemma yet, but I have uh, finished all of Queen's Gambit. Look, I'm a hardcore searching for Bobby Fischer fan. And so the second I saw the trailer for Queen's Gambit, I was like, yeah, that's for me. I will enjoy it. And I was not disappointed. Scott Frank, Hmm. man, did the thing. Whether you're spending this Thanksgiving by yourself or with your family or significant other, I recommend you find time to relax on the couch and get lost in a gripping family drama because nothing says Thanksgiving like family drama. Uh, Especially this year, right? (laughs) Definitely this year. I'm going to be talking about a new film, Hillbilly Elegy. I got to sit down with the star of it, Amy Adams. And as you know, Amy Adams, she's, I feel like, almost a national treasure at this point. She's been nominated six times uh, for the Academy Award, never won, uh, but has amassed an incredible uh, slew of films, just a few. I think about The Muppets, Master, On the Road, Trouble with the Curve, Her, obviously Lois Lane and Mad of Man of Steel, American Hustle, uh, Arrival, Nocturnal Animals. 
and now Hillbilly Elegy, uh, where once again, she plays a real life character. She's J.D. Vance's mom, Bev, uh, who's a very unlikable character on paper, but it's Amy who brings such humanity to her and and lends the audience a purview to, to, to sympathize with her, which is always one of Amy's great talents. So here's my conversation with Amy Adams. Amy Adams, it's a delight to see you and speak with you. And if our listeners can listen real close, you can hear nature because we're outside in your backyard. It's absolutely beautiful. I love it. I saw a bunny earlier and I'm hearing the birds mm. and the water. It's so nice up here. Yeah, I think Colorado instilled a love of nature. So it's one of those things I'm always grateful to get to participate in. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I'm just going to start by asking you about Hillbilly Elegy. Mm-hmm. This obviously based on the best-selling book by J.D. Vance, uh, New York Times bestseller, his autobiography, You Play His Mother, Bev. Yeah. Uh, you've played real-life people a couple times in your career. Not overwhelmingly so, but a couple times. Yeah, more than once. Talk to me about what grabbed you about this story or the script when it, when it came to you. What made you kind of think, I'm going to step into these shoes right yeah, now for I, this. I wasn't familiar with the book. I mean, I'd heard of it, but I hadn't read it when the script came across my desk, so to speak. Um, Ron Howard had sent me, I he'd gotten my number, and he texted and asked if it was okay if he called. And I was, of course. I mean, of course I'm going to take Ron Howard's call. And we had a really long conversation. And Ron Howard and I are both very um, chatty, I guess you could say. And I think that's the first thing that pulled me in was was Ron and also this sort of his way into the story through the family. So I, I bought the book and read that uh, soon after I had read the script and um, was really fascinated with this family and their story. Mm-hmm. And and Mamma is played by Glenn, Glenn Close. Glenn Close. Oh. Oh. <laughs> we both did it at oh. the same time. We both had the uh, exhale. Yeah, I mean, Glenn. I just love Glenn. How, how how was it working with Glenn? It's amazing. I'm always impressed when I'm working with people that I grew up watching, um, when they're still approaching it with so much fresh. They have fresh eyes and a fresh take and so much energy. And her take on Mama is so organic and, and the amount of uh, research she did and the amount of video that she watched and, and just her energy for the character. It's so inspiring to me to see people approach a character um, with that much dedication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's cool. I she just, does seem can cool. Can I swear? Yeah, you can oh, swear. Good. She's cool as shit, man. She is so cool. She seems really cool. She's really cool and funny and yeah, just genuine. So I... You're playing a real-life character, as we established. Tell yes. me about getting in. What got you into Bev? What was the thing that, was it the shoes? Was it the hair? Was it the denim? No. Was it, because <laughs> some, sometimes helps. people take an essence and, and you know, I know JD has been quoted as saying, like, it felt like he saw his mother and grandmother come to life. He felt like they were yeah. reincarnated in you and Glenn. It's, it's interesting because... I've always worked from the inside out, meaning I really, really need and value everything you can put on the character. But if I can't find the character internally, nothing I put on is going to help me find it. So for me, it was really getting to know the family, getting to see their interactions. But Vanessa's script really 
it challenged us because when we find Bev and Mama, often it's inside of very traumatic moments for JD. You know, this is JD's recollection and point of view. So it's inside very traumatic moments. So it's constantly living in a state of um, causing trauma to a child in a way. And that was, that was hard, you know, that was the challenge. Um, I wasn't sure I was going to, how I was going to, uh, come in and out of that, mm-hmm. you know, being a mother, that was tricky. Knowing that you are, have to do what's on the script, knowing that you're, this is only one second in one person's life. And then yeah. again, a, a writer's interpretation, a director's interpretation, yes, an ma'am. actor's interpretation. You are three at the very minimum, you're three interpretations away from the real person. Mm-hmm. What was most important for you to get right? Mm. For her. Her desire to be better. I think her true desire to be different. And whatever kept her from being different, that's what's underneath and that's sort of what drives her. But I think her true desire was to be the best mother she could be, the best nurse she could be. Um... Life got in the way. And we should say she's six years sober she's now. She's six years sober. She's, uh, last I heard, I didn't hear from her, but I did her through a source that she's actually helping addicts now and she's working, um, she's paying it forward. So she's doing great. And when I saw her, she was working on getting her nursing license back. That's one of the things in the film that is so heartbreaking is you realize how sympathetic and how nurturing she is as a nurse when she yeah. was a nurse. Yeah. You realize how good she was at her job. Very good at her job. And that she was so smart. Yeah. Put herself through nursing school with two kids. You know, that's not easy. Right. I couldn't do it. Right. And then just yeah. like you said, life happens. Yeah. Um, well, you were talking earlier about Ron Howard and, and like Chevrolet, Apple Pie and Ron Howard. I mean, I think of him He's... as started on the Andy Griffith show, then Happy Days, mm-hmm. then went on to do Splash and Night Shift and Apollo 13. And, you know, most recently he did Rush. I mean, he's he's done so much work over the course of his uh, career as a director and obviously as a producer and a mentor. What was your experience working with him? I mean, there's Ron Howard, the person, and there's Ron Howard, the director. So what makes Ron Howard, the person, so amazing is he... And and it bleeds over, so they they bleed over. I like to tell this story because it kind of says it all. Netflix has training before you start working to sort of understand, like... It's like a PR protocol meeting, like, uh, here's our expectations. And it's all pretty, you know, pretty standard. And we get to the end, and... It, the the person running the meeting is like, okay, does anybody have any questions or comments? And Ron Howard raises his hand and says, yeah, um, I don't like name calling and I don't like yelling. And I don't think either are necessary for a good product or a good experience. And that is Ron Howard. You know, he's, he's so gracious. He thanks everybody all day long. He's constantly thanking people, whether it's craft service or the extras coordinator, the casting assistants, the PAs, myself, he's constantly thanking people for showing up and being committed. So he really pays attention to the experience that people are having on set. And that is a really beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. 
But as a director, he is challenging. Like, he really is not going to leave a scene until he has minded. He's challenging in the best way, I find. He wants to really find the layers and the depths of the scene. And he likes to stay in it. What's your favorite day on the job? Like, when you wake up and you know, is it the difficult scene? Is it the easy scene? Like, what, what is the Amy Adams' favorite day? I, I think it's the scenes when we're all together. Um, we got to start the film out in the holler, and we all filmed in a small town uh, north of Atlanta. We all stayed in a bed and breakfast. And we wake up and go to set and see each other all day long and then come home and eat dinner together then sit out on the porch and either play games or tell stories or sing songs. So for me, it's not just the filming, but it was this amazing experience we all got to have for about a week. And it was that kind of cast. Sometimes casts get that, you get that kismet where everybody comes together and um, just, it's easy. How's Glenn's singing voice? Because I know yours uh, and I know Haley's. So Haley's is really good. How's Glenn's? Really good. Really? Yes. She's really into like South Pacific. Yeah. Those are my favorite, favorite nights. That feels very special. Yeah. Uh, you've played some incredible characters and I just think about the... Joaquin Phoenix oh. and her and in the master and Philip Philip mm. Seymour Hoffman and the master. Yeah. That was a special one. That was really special. Well, anytime I got to work with Philip was special for me. So. What was he like? Cause you guys did oh. doubt together too. How, how would you describe? He was so interested in other people and you always felt seen with him. In my experience of working with him, was not only being seen as Amy, but when I was playing the character, I felt that his character was seeing my character, and it made it feel so real. Um, everything with him felt so real and immediate. There's just something about him. Um, I guess that's the best way to put it, is you felt seen. Mm -hmm. Good or bad sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, oh no, he can see me. <laughs> um, yeah, he laughed at me a lot, which was fair completely fair yeah and and what about Joaquin he's so tender you know it's funny he always called me angry Adams <laughs> he and Philip and Paul Thomas Anderson and Spike Jones I think they still only refer to me as angry <laughs> it's a good nickname I want to talk to you about your singing because you can't think of Amy without singing at least I can't without your vo voice and vocals and obviously made famous uh in Enchanted and I know there might be another there's been rumors swirling that we're gonna see an Enchanted 2 or whatever it's called mm -hmm. but that you might be doing that again but tell me how important that is to you and I and I think also of you singing I, at the Oscars like how crazy oh, is that you sing that two was, songs at the Oscars I only sang one I wasn't trying to correct you I just didn't want to oversell my accomplishments um that was the scariest thing uh, I've ever done <laughs> yeah I mean career-wise that was the scariest thing I remember having a panic attack backstage before it started and thinking I am. Why did I agree to do this? Why did? Why would I agree to do this? Um, but it was fun. You've done that thing that is pretty rare, or, or it's not as easily accomplished as it looks. But you have maintained privacy 
and dare I say even been boring for most Hollywood well, starlets. Being and boring comes very easy to me, Krista. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about that. I know it's intentional. And I know you cannot be boring if you chose to not be boring. So I'm not going to believe that when you say that. I'm going to demand more from you. Um, I think it's that I'm boring. I'm just boring. I'm, I'm basic. It always feels like it doesn't come off as genuine to say that I don't like attention. I, I feel like coming from a big family... And having my husband and my daughter, I'm just always sensitive to the life that they chose versus the life that I chose. So knowing that I'm one of seven children and knowing that I'm the mother of a child and the, you know, the wife of my husband, I just value the intimacy of those relationships so deeply that um, I guess I've worked to keep them very close to me. I don't know. I don't know how to put it. I think I'll go with I'm boring. <laughs> I have a whole theory on this. I feel like, one, I think it is something, and maybe I'm just projecting and no one's really interested in me. They're interested in you. But I do think this applies. <laughs> I think this does apply to both of us. I think when you grow up in a place like Colorado and you're constantly, every day you're at the Rocky Mountains and you're faced with this nature that's overwhelming, mm. you always know that there is something bigger than you. Yes, that feels right, what you're saying. And I feel like that is something that I've always had. Like, like there's something so much bigger than me. Just look at that. Yeah. So I feel like you have a little of that. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen you do this thing where you disappear in like in front mm -hmm. of me or in front of whoever it is. And I, I can see you walk in a restaurant as no one notices go to the bathroom and walk back in as Amy Adams and everybody notices. And I think that's something that you, I don't even know if you're doing it, but it's something that you know how to do. You know how to disappear in your own person, mm. just like you do in the roles that you play. And I've seen that. It's a fascinating thing. I mean, I've seen people who innately have personalities that cannot be hidden. They just, it will never, they can never disappear. It's just not within them, and, and it's organic and innate to their, who they are. But I think my nature is small. Like, when I think about who I am, I feel very internal. And I like to sit out with the trees and, you know, commune with nature and go for hikes. What are we taking with us when, when we get that vaccine? It'll be really interesting. Yeah. I've realized... Um, in sitting with my family and watching movies and really relying on our Netflix, on our television for uh, family time and for entertainment, especially in the times when we're really meant to stay inside, how much, how much value it does actually bring and how it can really transport people. So I'm leaning into that right now. Mm -hmm. Just being grateful to be a part of something that I personally have really, really needed during these past uh, nine months. Amy, thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. for your time. Thanks for your backyard. Of it's so, course. It's been so nice to hang with you. I know. It's so pretty back here. I love what you do. I love you on screen. I love you in real life. Thank but you. I love just... what you do, too. Thank you so much. <laughs> 
So, Krista, what what surprised you most about your conversation with Amy? <laughs> that she insisted on the fact that she was boring. <laughs> she saves all the excitement for for the camera on screen. It was it was funny to to have her articulate that, and and I totally got what she was saying. One other thing that really surprised me was when she said that the scariest moment in her career was right before she sang on the Oscars as she was standing backstage and she was just terrified of that moment and and kind of immediately regretting, why did I agree to this? And that surprised me because I know Amy loves to sing. She loves to karaoke. It's so a part of who she is. And obviously an Enchanted and and an upcoming Dear Evan Hansen and hopefully with Enchanted too. You know, she's really in her happy place when she's singing. But I thought that was interesting. Even Even the Oscars can terrify Amy Adams. Franklin, I wanted to talk to you about something you tweeted recently. And I love your Twitter feed. If Mm -hmm. all our listeners out there, if you do not follow him on Twitter, you are missing out, people. Not only do you get educated, but you get to laugh. And I love it. It's so it it brings me great joy, Franklin. So let me just thank you publicly for your Twitter. You're very (laughs) kind. Yeah, hopefully it's both educational and entertaining. (laughs) Well, I love what you tweeted recently uh, when you said, we need to talk about Netflix 2020 Q4, October 9th, 40-year-old version, October 30th, His House, November 13th, Jingle Jangle, December 18th, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, four black films, four different genres, average Rotten Tomato score likely greater than 97%. Yeah. Uh, and I concluded that by saying absolutely staggering, uh, because it is. It's just a, it's an unusual run uh, of quality, first and foremost, regardless of the background of the people making it. But it's just exciting that it's four black films, four different genres in such a short period of time. Totally. Couldn't agree with you more. Well, let's talk a little bit about Remy Weeks, because you got to sit down with him. I did. Um, look, it, it, in, in case... The holidays are not your thing, or even if they are, and you, and you want to spend your time with a significant other or your family, and, and you want to be scared, um, and you know, add a little bit of uh, thoughtfulness and uh, sort of you know cultural relevance to your experience. I can't recommend his house uh, highly enough. Um, in this film, a refugee couple makes a harrowing escape from war-torn South Sudan, and they find themselves struggling to adjust to their new life in an English town that has. Let's just say an evil lurking uh, just beneath the surface that that may have followed them there. We talked about a lot, right? How the project came together, um, how you know he talks about the diaspora and the notion of immigration um, and, and what home is. And uh, it was a fascinating conversation. I'm really proud of it. I think you'll enjoy it. There is a classic 1982 comedy bit that, that existed before you were born by Eddie Murphy about black people and horror movies, uh, where he basically oh, yeah. jokes about how, how black, how you can't have horror movies with black people because, you know, the movie yeah. would just be like, you know, wow, baby, this is beautiful. We got a chandelier hanging up here, kids outside playing. It's a beautiful neighborhood. I love it. <laughs> and then there's a demonic whisper, get out. And then the, 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 the response is too bad we can't stay. And I, I just thought it was remarkable this film that you managed to create a dynamic where you could have a haunted house film with black people and it works. I I came with a two, a kind of two pronged approach. There was um, one 
one part of it was that I found that the specifics of being an asylum seeker really unique and strange and actually could really, would be a really fun twist on the haunted house genre. But also I came from it as, you know, my family's from all over the world. And so I come from the communities I grew up in is, diverse and often for migrant communities and one thing about living in the UK, we often suspicious that the UK is not particularly comfortable with the idea of diversity and so you're torn in two ways. There's part of you that wants to wants to try and assimilate and disappear and fit in and but then there's the part of you there's the other side of you that kinda of wants to stick your middle finger up and Everyone is actually, I'm proud to be who I am, and I'm going to, I'm going to own it, and I'm going to, in that way. And those sides of you is always tussling each other. And I, and I found that could be interesting when telling a story about two people who have arrived in a new place and are trying to, I guess, move on with their lives. I find it interesting that these two people could have these opposite perspectives and have the kind of the the drama of the piece being that reconciliation of those two feelings. Then let's talk about, let's talk about a very specific uh, thing, which is upon arriving, upon sort of getting out of detention, upon getting their house, the first thing Bull does the next morning is get a haircut. Yeah. It, it, that felt like such an explicitly black moment to me, right? And I think any black person, even one like me who hasn't had a haircut in over 20 years, uh, would recognize it as such. And I'm curious about the sort of details around them being specifically Sudanese, them being specifically black. Yeah. Um, and then yet when Rial is lost... She's mocked by these sort of black teenagers. And I, I'm curious if you could just talk about sort of the, the articulation of blackness in the context of this movie, sort of being both, you know, generally diasporically black, but still separate from the black, black British experience as defined by that interaction with those black teenagers. One thing that's always amazed me and also made, disappointed me somewhat is that even amongst groups of people who you think we have a shared and common experience that tribalism still still forms. A lot of the um, stories in this, or a lot of the moments in this film is based on some, a lot of the research, and part of that scene of Rial when she's talking to um, the group of kids was partly inspired by some actual things that, some actual stories South Sudanese people have said wherein they come to either the UK or America, and then they suddenly realize that even to black Americans or black British people, they're still seen as immigrants and they're still seen as Africans or, or lower than. Right, one final question that I couldn't uh, sort of let you go without talking about um, the two stars of your film. Yeah. Really excep exceptional performances uh, from, from Chopin and, and Wumi. I, I, if you could just talk a little bit about uh, how you found them uh, and what the process of working uh, with them was like, because I think that, they, I mean, it is essentially a two-hander, but they really, I mean, these are not easy roles. They require a wide range of charismatic uh, performance. Uh, and I don't, I can't think of a foot wrong they put. So uh, yeah, let's just talk about, let's just, let's just hype them up for a little bit. They are both, amazing and beautiful actors and human beings. I was so lucky 
I'm so fortunate that I was able to work with both the crew and, and Chopin and Rumi and have them be so supportive and patient and really, really professional and clever um, when it came to developing the roles and performing performing them on, on camera. Um, and they also both are so different in terms of their technique and the nuts and bolts to how they create a performance. It's always fun to um, observe them and observe the way that they get to a, to an emotional truth. They're excellent. And they also knew each other vaguely before they met. And so the chemistry was just like so easy. And so it was just so clear from that moment that it was these two actors and no one else made my life so much easier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from moment one, you believe that these are two people who love each other, have been through hell, and, you know, have no problem telling each other when they're wrong, but they're committed yeah. to figuring it out, which, yeah. you know, there are a million ways that can go wrong, but it just works, and, and bravo to you for, for, for having the wisdom to choose them, if nothing else, and then from getting those performances. <laughs> So that was an edited down version of my interview with Remy Weeks. Uh, if you want the full interview about the making of His House, uh, you can read it at netflixq.com, netflixqueue.com. It's a good conversation. You want to check out the whole thing. I am such not a horror fan, but I have to say I agree with you. I am so excited to see uh, what Remy Weeks does. I think he is just an incredible filmmaker. Oh, 100%. And, and not only that, I, I just got to give a shout out too to the two at, the two lead actors of uh, his house, Shope Dorisu and Wumi Masaku. Uh, stars, just incredible performances. And, you know, you can't look away from them, which I think makes the horror that much more dramatic, frankly, because you care. Right. Well, I'm not really good at doing horror, but I can definitely do documentary. And one of the films we're going to be talking about is quite possibly one of the best documentaries that I've seen this year. And that's Dick Johnson is Dead. Yeah, this is a, um, a, a, a truly unique documentary. Um, you know, it balances the heartwarming with the macabre, cinema verite with the fantastical, uh, chuckles with some very, very harsh truths. Um, Kirsten Johnson plays out scenarios in which her father suddenly and often gruesomely uh, meets his maker uh, as a way to emotionally prepare herself for his inevitable demise. Uh, as you can imagine, it is an intensely personal project, much like her 2016 film Camera Person, which comes up a few times in this interview, and I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Um, and it's a film that will sit with you long after uh, you've watched it. Um, and fortunately, uh, as an interlocutor, director Mike Mills is no stranger to intensely personal projects and grappling with the death of parents. Mills and Johnson connected before her work began on Dick Johnson is Dead, and here we have them connecting after the documentary has made its way out into the world, speaking about the filmmaking process of this, again, unique project and a whole lot more. So to get to like this kind of nitty gritty, how did you make it? Like, obviously, you made this agreement with your dad. Obviously, you had some things you knew you wanted to film, but how much did you create it as you went along? Or how, how did the process of the whole filmmaking go? 
Yeah. Um, it was um, Priya Swaminathan when she was still at Annapurna who introduced us. And she had just cold called me about camera person and sort of blew my mind what she said about um, what the film meant to her. And then she said, are you trying to make anything new? And I was like, I'm trying to make a crazy film with my dad where I want to kill him over and over. And <laughs> he's like, did you know that I was the producer of Jackass? And, and, and I was like, I did not. I'm so excited. Um, and she said, you know, there's somebody I think you should talk to and it's Mike. And so I called you and I also called Nash Edgerton, who you introduced yeah. me to Edgerton yeah. and um, who has been a stunt person. Right. Yeah. And, we had these amazing conversations about, you know, how do we do vulnerability in cinema? Like, how is it possible? And then how do we, how do we pretend that vulnerability isn't happening in cinema? And so it's just super cool for me that I'm catching you at the beginning of the process. And now, as you say, as the film like enters its life, you know, what we were trying to do is like leave all this space in this movie for people to like, do their own thing, cry for their own reasons. Like, yeah. I don't know, you know, I don't know why you were crying. Yeah. But um, as my dad would say, when the eyes are dry, the organs cry. So you did something beautiful for your body. It was fully yogic. <laughs> I mean, both my parents are gone and it was some of the more quiet scenes, like your dad and the soup later on, like your dad's decline. Like I'm very familiar with that. And the, the very quiet things that you caught, um, um, your dad's napping like that. I know all about that. This thing that you do that, you, that we got a little bit of in camera person is you're there and you're filming, you're having a conversation. You put down the camera and you touch the person and the camera's like shooting the floor. Like when your dad's talking about like, and now um, I'm going to yeah. cry. Now, and now we experience the same thing over again. You're talking about your mom in the Seattle house and he says, I'm sorry. Ugh. And uh, but the, it, to me, it's like one of the best shots in cinema that the camera's like shooting the floor over there, and you still hear the sound. This action of you operating the camera and then going around it or yeah. putting it aside, but yeah. keeping it on. Yeah, you know, I mean, this thing about like breaking, like trying to break these edges, right? Mm -hmm. Like these edges that we pretend in mm -hmm. and and say like, we're all bodies here. You know, like mm -hmm. even now in this pandemic time where all, there's so many of us who can't touch the people we need to touch, right? Like, you know, it's like, and I like, I mean, you know, I wanna hug you after like you responding to my film in this way, right? Mm -hmm. and, and connecting to what it has been to be with my dad through this process. And yet we can't in this moment. But cinema does, the, cinema has these capacities, right? Where somehow, you know, like as my head becomes bigger, I can become the Wizard of Oz, you know, like, and, and so that's what, you know, camera person sort of like freed me in all of these ways mm. and, and, and allowed me to even see myself in ways I didn't understand myself. Mm. I really like, I wanted to say to death, like, I'm sorry, you can't have this one. And I think cinema might be able to like, help me do this. In camera person, the wonderful editor I work with, Nels Bangarder, like did this cut where my mom's, her ashes are there on the screen and then boom, he cut to footage of her alive. That like, oh, cinema can do these crazy things. So like, how can we push it into crazier and crazier territory? Yeah. And maybe by doing that, we can defy time. Like 
we can defy genre, we can defy death and defy dementia. Like that I can like reassemble my father. Yeah. So I can show you him looping in these like tiny loops, but then I can expand him through the slow motion of the dance scenes. Yeah. Expand his smile to last longer. What is your take on fabrication and mm. uh, and the way like when your dad was playing the clarinet, whatever in the backup singers, like their crazy look on their face. I was like, well, this is like monstrous. It's like a grotesque, right? Yeah. So that's hard to do. I find like as a director to like keep your own DNA really strong and in such different spaces. Mm. I mean, you asked me earlier about process, right? And so there are like several really strong intentions that we brought to this film. And we brought it as a group of people who have all worked together before, um, producers who, you know, love me and I love them and an editor who, you know, I've worked with um, just in a really deep way. And the wish was, okay, this movie teaches us how to make it. Yeah. We will not know anything about it. We'll do processes that you usually do at the end, at the beginning and the middle. So we edited very early we went into the sound mix extremely early and tried out, okay, let me hear a different tone for what this death could feel like. Uh Like, let's do the trip so it's like really comical. Let's do the trip so it like gut punches you. Let's hear the trip so you hear the head knock against the concrete. And And then you'd see like, okay, what happens when that does that thing? So, cause I'll, my worry always was, is like tone. How do we manage tone in this film, right? Because yeah. it's totally all over the map, like dementia and like love and like relationships. So how can you really actually be in all these different tones? Yeah. Um, so it was always this idea of back and forth and then back and forth between what we know, what we don't know, between um, the what is and what will be. Right. So my father is alive. He will be dead. Uh, you know, there is a moment when we'll look back on this and we'll realize like, oh, this isn't the way he died. Right. But all of those documentary steps are documentary steps that we as documentarians know, like every single day you shoot, if you're out there, some crazy thing happens that is so beyond your imagination. Yeah. You know this, like, right. You know, like when you are out filming the young children that you were filming, like, people say amazing things and mm. that resonate with what you're thinking about. And then suddenly they can flip the whole movie. I had this real sense of like, whoa, that was real. Right. And that yeah. was such a nice relief in this world where it's, uh, it's become so gaseous and toxic as I live in a smoke filled LA. But like, yeah. it's, it's like, well, it's like, what is going on? And, and this sort of anxiety of formlessness. And so you broke so many forms, you broke so many rules. You were like, I thought a lot of Agnes Varda's documentaries, you yeah, know, definitely. family, yeah. personal. But I was like, well, that was like a rock that Christian just threw through my screen and sitting on my bed with me now. And it's so nice to have a rock that's like heavy and real and all that. Oh you know? my God, I love it that I can like <laughs> throw a boulder through the screen at you. It's just, it's just a beach ball, Mike. You just have to beach and throw it right back to me. It's a disco ball. It's a, it's a disco ball of mirrors is what it is. <laughs> Thank you. Kristen, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like I, that was so life-giving. And part of awesome. my sleeve, part of my sleeve. <laughs> and uh, 
what a rare thing you just experienced, right? How rad. Um, let's all give it the love that we can. I think it fully deserves it and it just makes the world better. So, uh, Mike, you're the best. High five. <laughs> <laughs> We're out. <laughs> It's, it's interesting. I've been reading a lot about the early history of cinema uh, lately. And there is a quote uh, from a French newspaper. I don't speak French, so this is the translation, but it literally is from the day after the Lumiere brothers sort of had their first ever like paid cinema thing at the Grand Cafe uh, on December 28th, 1895. So 125 years ago. And, and this Gazette said, and I'm going to quote here, you know, we have already recorded and reproduced spoken words. We can now record and play back life. We will be able to see our families again long after they're gone. And it was sort of wild sort of thinking about this interview in the context of that and sort of how Kirsten has used the medium of film to preserve her father and prepare her uh, for the reality that he won't be here anymore. And that in, an, in another way, all of us will not be here at some point in the future. Mm, I, it's, it's beautifully said, you know, uh, having been the winner of this award two times over, I lost my mom uh, a very long time ago and my my dad over a decade ago. It I felt it so heartwarming to to just share in that experience with her. Listeners, please watch it. It there is more joy than sorrow in it. It is just such a cathartic ride about like I said earlier, time and life and death and what we choose to do in between. Speaking of time, into a very specific time, and Franklin and I have already, you know, discussed this earlier, but that is season four of The Crown. This era of The Crown is, for me, my sweet spot. Having come up in, in Vanity Fair during the demise of the, the Princess Diana and Charles's relationship, I feel like at Vanity Fair we lived and breathed uh, the royal family. What's great about it is that it like we were saying earlier, two new young actors that are fantastic, Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin play Charles and Diana. And we are lucky enough to get them <laughs> to sit down for a chat uh, with Netflix's uh, Gina Moore Barrett about the pressures that come with playing Charles and Diana and also the particulars of, you know, nailing that royal accent and how they're similar to the characters they play, and plus uh, a few plans for petty theft. Is there a level of pressure that comes with all of the anticipation around <laughs> this particular story, and are you shitting yourself, basically, about it coming out? <laughs> yeah, currently. Um, <laughs> yeah, there is such a... <laughs> there is such a... Obviously, such a high level of pressure that comes with these roles. You kind of have to remind yourself that this is... Um, fictional mm. the crown is fictional and um you know it's peter morgan's storytelling we are telling we are storytellers and these are characters um mm. just as much as they also obviously real people mm -hmm. and for me i think that was a really important distinction in the whole um process of doing research and getting to grips with diana was that um you know the research was really helpful very informative but actually when i got the scripts and when i started working with um polly bennett who helped with movement and, you know, doing more work on, like, physicality and psychology, I suppose that was, 
yeah, it kind of helps leave all the hot air and the, the voices and the like, ah. Let's talk about the royal accent. It's arguably the poshest accent on earth. Basically, I was just gonna ask how long it, how long it took you both to get that accent down because it's... Mine's not, I don't have a royal accent. Mine's yeah, that's so voice. different. But she does have a very distinctive voice, but go. Uh, well, it's very, also it's very different. Charles is very different. They're all quite different. Yeah. So like the Queen's is sort of, Mad. I mean, it's totally unique. Phillips and Charles. Phillips comes from a sort of German-influenced um, sort of accent as well. Mm. And then Charles is like an amalgamation. I've tried to recreate it. I'm from South London. It's just not happening. Like, I can't do it. <laughs> I bet you could. No. You Can I teach you something? You don't move your mouth when you talk. You're going to get it right now. I okay, think. right. So what you need to do? Try saying this one I was taught. I'm not like claiming to be the best at teaching people to do posh accents. If you say ears. So say ears. Ears. Okay. Ears. Now just imagine that I've just asked you a question that needed the answer yes and say ears. So you work for Netflix. Ears. Did that, sound like a, that did yeah, not sound ears. like a yes. That's it. Ears. Honestly, they say ears. Maybe if I say ears, ears. posher. Ears. 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 <laughs> so instead of yes, ears. you just say ears. 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 Done it. <laughs> Sorted. There you I go. On a scale of one to ten, how similar are you actually to your characters and what you learn about them. Well, Josh always has a boiled egg with every meal. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of us can be that similar, can we? Because we don't live in a different. big old palace. Yeah. yeah. We're pretty different. There's a bit where Dinah's out with her mates um, after the proposal and they like go out and they're dancing. And that day of filming felt incredibly close to what I actually do with my mates. That was also interesting because it was kind of like, wow, this is what she, this was her life before it changed. Yeah. And that was quite, emotional moment mm. of realisation. I don't think I'm anything like Prince Charles, to be honest. That's the fair. character or the real man. I think I'm quite different. Beauty of being a great actor, do you know what I mean? Ears. Completely different. I mean? Ears are the different. I've got similar ears. During my research of the two of you, I came across an interview with you, Josh, from last year, oh, in which you said, and I quote, I've got my eyes on something and I'm going to steal it at the end of series four. It's a paperweight with Prince Charles's head in it. Did you steal it? I just want to know. I've got really invested. Did you steal it? I didn't, and it's such a tragedy. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, actually. I had plans to steal it. Yeah, I was invested in this How? petty thing. And I've still got plans. Okay. The problem is that at the end of series four, we f had to finish like two or three days early because of COVID yeah. and went into lockdown. I had a plan oh. ready. Right. Which is that I knew roughly where that paperweight was going to be. Mm. It might even still be there now. That sounds like the paperweight might have had other plans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I knew where he's going to be at what time. Yeah. Uh, paperweight watched yeah. the interview was like, so, absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> I'm going to run. Um, no, I had plans to steal him, it, and I haven't uh, been able to carry out those plans. Right. But who's to say? Did you that ever whoever steal gets cast, well, whoever gets cast as <laughs> Prince Charles in series five and six. Mm. Who's to say that I might not reach out to them and say, yo, hit me Please up. Please steal it. I wish I'd stolen it for you and I could have been like, well, actually. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I, I am obsessed with them. I, when Emma as Diana is in Buckingham Palace, roller skating in those plaid yeah. pants, I just lost it. I wanted, I rewatched that over and over again to girls on film. I mean, I couldn't take it. The games, the dipsy, doopsy, whatever they were playing. Ibble, dibble. Ibble, dibble. Thank you. Have you played that yet now that you've been in London? I, I have I have not played that uh, despite my time in London. Uh, I definitely Googled it to, to learn the rules because that's the kind of person that I am. But but I'm not ready, not quite ready for the Balmoral test yet. 
Uh-huh. And Gillian Anderson is just on next level as Margaret Thatcher. But what, what have you Incredible. been loving, Franklin? It's really a question of what I haven't been loving, and I really can't come up with anything. But Josh and Emma are particularly remarkable uh, in these two roles, which, as young actors, has to be beyond stressful and incredibly high stakes for them. And so I have to just applaud them for, given the stakes of it, delivering at the level that they do. Yeah, I would agree. That is uh, not too much pressure. <laughs> no, no. Everybody feels like they know it's their Diana. It's not, you know, it's not anybody else's. There's such odd possessiveness around these these real life people and in turn these characters. It's it's delicious. All right. Yeah. Well, I can't believe we are already at the end of our first episode, but here we are. And at the end of every interview uh, for my other podcast, Present Company, I like to ask my guests for advice that they have for people entering the entertainment business. So I'd like to share with you some words of wisdom from Amy Adams. Don't try to change the innate nature of who you are to become something you think they want. Learn yourself, learn your craft, and have fun. I would go into auditions and had planned the reading so that I was acting in the same nature of the person who I know they wanted for the part to be like, oh, if this is what they want, then I'll just do that. Um, but it didn't work, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> and it wasn't until, it was really when I, when I started playing slightly quirky characters, which is probably closer to my organic nature, did it start to click in. So I, I guess that's why I lean into like, spend more time learning who you are and learning your craft than trying to please others. You know, it's so interesting what Amy talks about. It's one of those things that's so hard to be you, especially while you're figuring out who you are. Yep. But I really think it's true, certainly in this profession. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also to allow who you are to change, but to be sensitive and make sure that that's still who you are, right? Like, it's you, none of us are static. There's always a dynamism to it. Um so you kind of have to be constantly listening to yourself about who you are and then living in that. Otherwise, you know, going another direction, that, that's the path to misery in my experience. But it takes a long time to realize that. Well, Franklin, I'm so excited that you were able to join me today. It's so great to talk to you and to hear your thoughts on everything. Really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for having me. It was, it was delightful. And I'm going to track you down and have you on again. So be prepared. I would be honored. <laughs> Well, that's our show, and you don't want to miss next episode when Amanda Seyfried joins us to talk all about Mank, plus a bunch of other fun conversations. All the films and series discussed today are streaming on Netflix. For more on Amy Adams, Remy Weeks, and Kirsten Johnson, head to NetflixQ.com and follow us at NetflixQ on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends to check out the podcast. Listen in next time for more like this.